Is Notre Dame season on the line Saturday against Clemson? Plus, how far will this game go in determining Jared Parker's future at Notre Dame? Pete Sampson from The Athletic joins me to discuss all of that and a whole lot more on today's edition of Locked on Irish. You are Locked on Irish, your daily podcast on the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up? Welcome to Locked On Irish. Today is Thursday, November 2nd, and thank you for getting your day started here by making this your first listen of the day. My name is Tyler Wojcik, and I'm the host. I graduated from Notre Dame in 2018, and now I'm a producer covering college football for Fox Sports. And today's episode is brought to you by Prize Picks. Go to prizepicks.com slash college and use code LOCKEDONCOLLEGE for a first deposit match up to $100. Daily Fantasy Sports made it easy. I'm really excited about today's episode because in just a moment here, I'm going to be joined by Pete Samson from The Athletic, and we cover a lot. In this episode, we go over the Clemson game. We preview both sides of the ball, what a win would mean for both programs because there is a lot at stake for Notre Dame and Clemson, even though neither team is in competition for the college football playoff. We also forecast Jared Parker's future at Notre Dame as well as Al Golden's. And we discuss what is uh, the best plan for Notre Dame as it relates to a transfer quarterback looking ahead to next season. And then we close it out with uh, a little bit of story time talking about the worst games Pete Sampson has ever covered in over two decades on the beat. I had a blast doing this. I hope you enjoy it as well. So let's bring in Pete. All right, I'm joined now by the one and only Pete Sampson from The Athletic. And Pete, let's start with the game on hand this weekend against Clemson and work from there. The stakes aren't quite what we thought they'd be in the preseason when we looked at this game as a potential play-in for the college football playoff. And yet, it still feels extremely important for both programs just for very different reasons. So even though Clemson is in a down year, what do you think it would mean for Marcus Freeman and Notre Dame if they're able to go on the road, get the win, and essentially put the nail in the coffin for the Clemson Tigers? I... I think it's more important for Notre Dame than it is for Clemson. Like, there's nothing that can happen for Clemson this season that I think is going to make this season feel like a redemption story. But to me, like, for Notre Dame, winning or losing on Saturday is a line between you had a successful season and you didn't. Uh, and I think you could make an argument that 9-3 and three isn't like a, a failure of a season, but I don't think you could make an argument that it's a, it's a success either. Um, so that's... That's a huge deal for Notre Dame. I, I to get Sam Hartman and put everything into the season and only be one game better in the regular season. I just think would feel pretty empty. So, you know, college football playoff or not, um, to go put yourself in a position to go ten and two, New Year's Six game, all that. I think there's a ton on the line for Notre Dame on Saturday afternoon. So it's um, you know Clemson's got its own problems, but I think Notre Dame. They they can make a statement, maybe not on a national level, because I don't think enough people are paying attention. But yeah, I, I think they would prove a lot to themselves, and I think sort of the the whole Freeman regime would be on much more solid footing with a win on Saturday. I would push back a little bit on the nation isn't paying that much attention because I think after what happened with Dabo Sweeney this week, I think there's going to be a lot more eyeballs on this game than maybe there would have been if Tyler from Spartansburg did not call into the Clemson radio show. When I, when I look at that, it kind of reminds me of what's going on right now with Bill Belichick and the Patriots because they're both coaches who have reached like the pinnacle of the sport, and they've been there for a while, obviously Belichick longer than Dabo has. And now it seems like everyone has passed them up because of both of their reluctance to adapt to the time. So even though Clemson, 
this game isn't going to drastically change uh, the season and the outcome of it because they still have four losses. Do you see this as a potential like do or die moment for the Clemson program if they end up getting blown out in this one? Mm, I I don't think so. I, I think that Dabo's sort of grace period there is is longer than one no good, totally rotten season, which is what they're having right now. Um, so I I don't think so. He's I'm sure that he's lost some of the fan base there. I don't. And it's like the rant that he had uh, earlier this week. Like I'm on, I'm all on Dabo for that one. Like, I think he was totally in bounds with the way yeah. he handled that. I can't like, believe he let him finish. Honestly, No, I just like, I, uh, he was in bounds with pretty much everything he said. I thought it was hysterical. Um, you know, it's like, there are some critiques of Dabo that are legit about the transfer portal and NIL. And like, you know, you mentioned Belichick a little bit, like sort of the uh, inability to adapt or evolve that that's all fair, but I think we're probably a couple more years away from there being any sort of real heat on Dabo Sweeney at Clemson. I mean, he's owed like North of $60 million. They're trying to figure out how to get out of the ACC to pay tens and tens of millions of dollars to do that. Like, I don't, I don't think that program is looking to reboot um, just because Kate Klubnick didn't work out. Um, and I think that there's so much that's good about Clemson right now, but their quarterback is wrong. And if you, you know, it's like everyone who listened to the show watched Notre Dame this year. It didn't matter how good the rest of the roster was last season. The quarterback was wrong. And even though Kate Klubnick was a five-star prospect, like it just is not happening for him. And that's sort of holding everything back right now. Yeah, I have been shocked at how Cade Klubnick has played this season, especially under Garrett Riley. And in his defense, he's only a true sophomore. He's still young, but we're talking about a former five-star recruit here. And then when I watched Drew Aller, another five-star recruit, in his second season at Penn State, he looked completely lost against Ohio State. And I know people want to recruit their own guys and to develop them, but those two, looking at how they've played this season, it's kind of made me reevaluate how I look at the quarterback position. And then you consider the fact that the top guys in college football right now are Bo Nix, who's uh, a fifth-year transfer. Michael Penix is a fifth-year transfer. Jordan Travis is in his sixth year. Obviously, there's not going to be six-year seniors that much longer because the COVID year will go away. But do you think it's time we rethink the quarterback position in college football and prioritize experience far more than anything else? Yeah, because I think that college coaches, you're not paid. This isn't college basketball. Like nobody is John Calipari where like the his entire purpose is developing NBA draft picks. Like the point of college football coaches is to win college football games. And so fu- the best way to do that is to have the most experienced quarterback possible. Sometimes that guy is a pro prospect. Sometimes he isn't. Um, you know, but I mean, I mean, you go back to Ian Book. Was he you know, an incredible athlete or incredible quarterback prospect. I know he went in the fourth round, but he was just a guy who had done it for a very long time at a reasonably high level. I think, you know, Sam Hartman is a step up from that, but I, as Marcus Freeman looks at the quarterback position next year, I just don't see any way it, he will go into it without another senior quarterback who's playing football somewhere else. Um, Cause it's, that position, especially in college, I just think that the experience level, like you said, that that is so much more important than measurables or arm strength or arm talent or whatever you know scouts want to describe it as. Like you just have a guy that you know is going to go out there and not 
not just lose it. Um, and I mean, we see these these highly rated prospects come in. They've got all the tools in the world, and they get out there, and the lights come on, and they just can't keep it together. And that's I just don't. After last season, Marcus Freeman, I just don't think he's ever going to allow himself to get caught in that spot again, where he's rolling the dice on a younger guy without knowing whether he can handle the spotlight. Yeah, the fact that the Drew Pine situation happened in his first year, like that is going to stick with him for the rest of his coaching career, and as it should, because it was literally a disaster for Notre Dame. But I know that Notre Dame is going to be looking for a uh, for a transfer quarterback this offseason, but. Uh, you've mentioned a few potential options in a recent article, and just right now, outside of Michael Pratt, who I think is more likely than not going to enter the draft, I don't really see anyone that excites me who I also think realistically would enter the portal and then go to Notre Dame. So do you think we're just at a point here in November where we're going to have to wait and see? There's probably going to be some names um, who we might not expect, or do you think that this is going to be a pretty thin transfer quarterback class? I think it'll be thinner than last year when like the entire ACC moved. Um, <laughs> that's you're just not going to replicate that. Um, and I like how often can you go into the portal and find a guy that's already thrown 110 career touchdown passes? Like not often. So I don't. I think I wrote this in my mailbag last week. You, you're I think you're going to be perpetually looking out for Jack Cohn, and then if Sam Hartman comes along, great. But that's probably not the guy that you're going to be able to get. Um, and you know, it's like whether it's Will Howard at Kansas State, um, you know, could you go farther down the list of a guy who was maybe played a little bit less? Somebody mentioned to me like, hey, Dylan Gabriel has an extra year of eligibility because he took a red shirt and has a COVID year. I don't know why he would leave Oklahoma, but I mean, that's a, a name that could be bandied about a little bit. So there's. You know, Gabriel would be much more of the Hartman mold, right? If not better in terms of the experience he's had. But I, I just think if you can find a power five quarterback who started a dozen games, 20 games, like I think you have to pull the trigger on that and then let them fight it out in camp. Like I, I don't expect, you know, if you get a, a Will Howard from Kansas State that, you know, Steve Angeli or Kenny Minch or CJ Carr are going to beat him out. But they could play with him. I mean, I think you could get in the unconventional mold of like, we have an experienced guy to start the year. And then maybe we have this, this younger Uber talented guy that we can bring along uh, in spots. Like that just may be the way you have to do it until you have a guy in house that you really can trust. Yeah. And Will Howard has experience with that, basically sharing time with Avery Johnson right now at Kansas state. Yeah. So he definitely seems like an attainable option. Gabriel's an interesting one. I hadn't thought about that. I guess if there was anything that was going to push him out of Oklahoma, it would be the development of Jackson Arnold. But then it goes back to the same thing that we're just talking about. A five-star who came in who might have a ton of raw talent but is extremely young. Would Oklahoma be willing to move on from an experienced guy like Gabriel for Jackson Arnold? It's it's a really difficult situation. I'm glad I'm not the offensive coordinator or offensive coaching staff who has to make those decisions. But then again, that's why they're paid a lot. But sort of on that note, I wanted to talk about Jared Parker, Notre Dame's offensive coordinator, because I think Saturday is a huge opportunity for him to showcase his skills as a play caller. He's been the subject uh, of a lot of criticism from the fan base really ever since that last drive against Ohio State. And I would say most of the criticism has been warranted. But they did move the ball well in that game, and Ohio State is clearly one of the best defenses in the country. So I think the group has a really good chance on Saturday going up against another really good defense to uh, show that they can be a little creative, they can put up points in a good team. So how important do you think Saturday's performance will be uh, for the future of Jared Parker at Notre Dame? Ooh, 
very, very critical. Um, and it's like the you look at the Ohio State game. Do they score a lot of points? No. And I realize that's the point of the offense to score points. But I thought like their plan made sense. Um, I could see what he was trying to accomplish. And you know, if Sam Hartman lowers his shoulder a little bit more in the first quarter, it might be a different conversation. Uh, but Duke, Louisville, those were poor, poor performances by Notre Dame offense. That and those the, on those nights, you couldn't see what Notre Dame was trying to do. So. The common denominator, they were on the road. Clemson's on the road. You, I think you have to show that you've matured a little bit and how to handle an environment there where not everyone is for you. Um, that will be something he's going to have to show on Saturday. And like, like Clemson is is right there with Duke in terms of like their defensive ability and their statistics. So I think it's a huge, huge day for Parker because I think he's sort of you know got got some good things going against Pittsburgh. USC was kind of hard to judge him on one way or the other because, like, it was all short fields and turnovers. Um, but at some point, the offense is going to have to stand on its own two feet. It's been a while since it's done that. Um, if they can do it on Saturday against Clemson, I, I think that would be a huge vote of confidence for Jared Parker. And it, it frankly, he probably needs it. I, I agree with that. And one matchup that's going to be central to the outcome of the game is Notre Dame's offensive line going up against Clemson's defensive line. Last year, Notre Dame dominated that matchup, and they returned three of the five starters who were on that unit last year. But I think that's going to be a lot closer to even this time around. I think Clemson is too prideful to get pushed around like that again, and I don't think Notre Dame's offensive line has played to that level or even close to it at any point this year. So am I overthinking it? And by giving Clemson too much credit, like how do you see that matchup playing out on Saturday? Yeah, it's... I think even Notre Dame didn't see Notre Dame winning that matchup the way that they did last year. I mean, you talk to the coaches after the game, they're like, well, did not see that coming. Um, they did not think they were just going to be able to blow them off the ball. Um, yeah, and that's I, – I think that Notre Dame can sort of round it better than they can last year. Like last year, that was their only path to victory. They had to dominate that matchup because Drew Pine wasn't going to throw them to, to anything. Um, Sam Hartman, at least you can sort of work around that a little bit more. So I don't think it's as critical to the outcome as it was um, last November. But, you know, it's like Notre Dame's offensive line, I thought they played really, really well against Ohio State and then bombed the next two weeks against Duke and Louisville. I think some of that was schematic, though, with Parker and the inability to sort of push the right buttons or find the right levers to pull. So I think, you know, Joe Alt will play well. It's the other four guys that, all right, is – are we going to see Blake Fisher that was supposed to be the other first round pick on the offensive line? Or are we going to see Blake Fisher where you're just like, what, what's happening here? Um, you know, Zeke Carell, does he get in stuck in a spot where he gets rooted off the ball by, you know, some of Clemson's 300 pound defensive tackles? Um, you know, he can get shoved backwards sometimes. I think that the guard play has been okay, but um, yeah, that's, it's on the offensive line has to play well uh, for Notre Dame to win the game. But I, I think so much of that comes down to Parker and putting them in better spots than maybe he did against Luke or Duke and Louisville, where you just saw seven and a half guys on the box all the time. I mean, how many times over the last few weeks do you sort of see the outside linebacker crash down over the tackle with no fear at all of the quarterback pulling it and running it? Um, it just it just seems like Notre Dame is looking for a counter to that style of defense. They haven't quite found it, but they're they're going to need that on Saturday because it's Clemson can get pressure on you without blitzing, and if that happens, then Notre Dame's going to have a hard time moving the ball. 
Pete and I will be back with more about Notre Dame's game against Clemson. But first, I wanted to tell you about Prize Picks. Prize Picks is a skill based, real money daily fantasy sports game where you pick two to six players and if they will do more or less than their Prize Picks projection. You can win up to 25 times your money on any entry. Prize Picks adds a ton of excitement to the sports viewing experience, and you can watch your progress update in real time, win up to 25 times your entry amount, and cash out your winnings with quick scoring, settling, and withdrawals. I've been playing prize picks recently. I have no idea why I waited so long. My favorite part about it personally is that you aren't competing against other people. It's just you versus the projections available instead of battling thousands of other players, which includes professionals and sharks. So go to prizepicks.com slash college and use code college for a first deposit match up to $100. That's prizepicks.com slash college. Code college for a first deposit match up to $100. Price picks, daily fantasy sports, made easy. Is there an area of the club's defense that you think Notre Dame is going to try and exploit? You know, it's that you can get them over the top. I just don't know if Notre Dame has the material to get them over the top, which is pretty frustrating. Um, I think Notre Dame will probably try to play this game like in a box. And that may be frustrating to watch at times because it sort of like plays into Clemson's hands a little bit. But I just you got to take some shots with Hartman and it's like, if you hit two of four, okay. Or three of six, if you can hit 50% of your deep shots, like I think you're, you're in business if you're Notre Dame, but uh, before Pittsburgh, I mean, that had dried up. I think he was three of 16 on 20 plus yard, like air yard passes from Ohio state through USC. That's got to be closer to, you know, 50%, 40%. So I, you'll have to take shots whether you hit them or not. But um, I just don't think there's something in Clemson's defense that Notre Dame is going to be able to exploit. I think they're, they're just going to have to try to play them even and then I think kind of muck around into the fourth quarter and hope that, you know, K-Club makes a big mistake, which is, I think, a, a reasonable strategy based on Clemson's season. Yeah, their offense has been really, really bad. It's not just Klubnik either. The receivers are nothing to write home about, and it's so weird watching Clemson and them not having one dynamic wide receiver. I know their tight end's pretty solid. The line is, it's not great, but that's kind of typical of what Clemson has been, even during their best seasons. Is there a big concern about Clemson's offense going up against Notre Dame's defense, even though Notre Dame probably is favorable in every aspect of that matchup? I don't know what the matchup is that Clemson would lean on. Um, You know, Brinningstool, their tight end is, is really good. Notre Dame's defense should be pretty used to practicing against really good tight ends. Um, like it, that there's nothing that he's going to do. They're like, Oh my God, we've never seen this before. Um, and their receivers like Notre Dame has shut down way better receivers than Clemson. Um, if you can get a handle on Marvin Harrison, like I think you can sort of handle Bo Collins. So, you know, Will Shipley, does he play? Does it not play at that hit that he took at NC state was, was pretty gnarly. Um, you know, based on stuff that we hear doesn't, I, I have a hard time seeing him playing, um, you know, Mafa, their, their other running back is really good, but he's a big back with some shiftiness. Notre Dame's defends a bigger back with more shiftiness every day. So I don't, I have a very difficult time seeing Clemson moving the ball. Um, and I think that you've seen Al Golden's defense, like, if you're shaky at quarterback, he's going to make you look bad. And Clemson is really shaky at quarterback. You mentioned his name, Will Shipley. Let's move away from the game for a second because Notre Dame recruited Will Shipley harder than any player I can remember, publicly at least. 
like everyone in the country knew that Notre Dame was exhausting all of its resources to recruit Will Shipley. And at the time, they weren't even recruiting any other running backs. It worked out for them. They got estimated. They got Logan Diggs. But where does he rank among other Notre Dame recruits, commitments, uh, in terms of the investment from the Notre Dame coaching staff during the time that you've been on the beat? Um, I mean, Manti Teo would be number one, right? Like that's, yeah. you can't, you can't put any more effort into a guy than they put into Manti Teo, you know, but beyond that, like, I think Shipley is really maybe at the top of the next group. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of guys that they've guys where you felt like, wow, Notre Dame put everything into this guy and, you know, ultimately they have to make a decision at the end. Like, and some of the, like, um, you know, Marcus Freeman is sort of putting everything into a recruit for Marcus Freeman is different than it was for Brian Kelly. So it's kind of hard to compare apples to oranges there. But um, Will Shipley was one of those guys in the Kelly era. Um, you know, Jalen Smith, um, you know, Mante Teo was Weiss era. Um, you know, there weren't a lot of other guys that really spring to mind of like, wow, they are all in on this guy, like to the point where, you know, they didn't even have a plan B, you know, to back them up. In, in some ways, it was kind of like a Dante Moore situation last year. I was year just going to, I was going to ask you about Dante Moore. Where yeah. it's like you almost, you're advertising to the kid, we're not going after anyone else as an enticement to get them to come play for your program, which is not a great strategy because it just leaves you uh, in a world of hurt if you can't pivot and suddenly find like Audric Estime out of nowhere for Michigan, like who's committed to Michigan state. So Shipley is very high in the list. And I think Shipley is also very high in the list of like guys. Notre Dame's looks at and says like, this is the quintessential Notre Dame football player. This is like the kind of guy that when you sign him, you know, he's going to be a two-time captain for you. Um, so I, I think that added to, um, why you we were all in on him. I remember having a one-on-one with Jack Swarbrick this summer. I think Shipley was going into maybe his junior year. I, I can't remember, but Swarbrick even referenced like there, and there's a running back from down South. That's like the kind of guy when he was talking about, like we need to find fit at Notre Dame first and foremost, like he not so subtly pointed Will Shipley as like, this is the kind of guy we need to get. Um, you know, and obviously he's, his career at Clemson, I don't think it's probably been at the level that he would have liked, but um, he's all the player. Yeah, if it's any consolation, at least they can take pride in knowing that their evaluation was correct. <laughs> like, yeah, he turned out to be a really on. good player. Um, it sucks that he didn't get to do it at Notre Dame, but like I was saying earlier, it, it worked out for Notre Dame. And you brought up the Dante Moore thing. He's playing right now at UCLA. Well, actually, he just got benched. I shouldn't say that. He played at UCLA so far this season, and then he got benched. And, I mean, there were rumors about him transferring even before the season started. Did Notre Dame really go all in on more? I know it's a different regime, but with Marcus Freeman, is it comparable to Shipley in that sense? Because I remember an article where, like, Chad Bowden said he – basically referred to Dante Moore and we're like, we're all waiting for his decision. He's the next national championship quarterback at Notre Dame. And then he just didn't go there. Yeah. They were all in on him. I mean, that, that was another, I remember talking to a staffer. They were figuring out what other quarterbacks to recruit. Cause like, all right, we feel good about Dante Moore. Dante Moore told us he's, he's coming. Like he thinks he's going to be part of the program here, but man, it's like, shouldn't he already be committed? But they were, they were worried 
that if they went out and scouted another quarterback, and you know how the like the recruiting sites work, where anytime a coach visits a school, like it has to be on a message board within 30 seconds. Well, there's a quarterback who ended up going to Kansas State that Notre Dame really, really liked, but they didn't, they skipped a chance to evaluate him, I think, during spring ball because they were worried it would look bad for Dante Moore. Um, and that's just like, you just can't be in that position where you, I get it, five-star guys call more shots than you would like if you're a college football coach, but that's a position you just you just can't let yourself get into. Um, and Notre Dame ultimately got burned by it because, yeah, they were they were all, all in on Dante Moore. Yeah, and then Notre Dame got a commitment from a guy in the class of 2024, and all of a sudden they were out of the Dante Moore sweepstakes, yep. even though I was told from their side that uh, those two things were not related. I'm sure that was just a coincidence. <laughs> but I do want to get it back uh, to this current Notre Dame team and talk a little bit about Al Golden because what he's done this season is it's unbelievable. Notre Dame has had a pretty great stretch of defensive coordinators uh, over the past decade or so. And this one, this this particular season, really took me by surprise. His defense has played as well as anyone in the country. And now we're having conversations about, is this the best Notre Dame defense of the past you know 15 years? I would say the 2012 team obviously has an argument. Did you see this coming at all? No. I mean, I, I thought the defense was going to be better than based on talking to people in the Goog uh, in the summer. Uh, and I was like, all right, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. But I don't think that even the staff thought that the defense was going to be at like this level. Because, I mean, you go back to the winter, and then I'm talking to a coach, then when they came out for mat drills, like just sort of the, the beginning of offseason conditioning and the defensive line ran out, the takeaway was like, this is it? Like, this is what our defensive line looks like? Like, there was not a lot of confidence that Notre Dame had like a world beating defensive line. And, you know, eight, nine months later, you look at that group and you're just like, holy crap, like what a job they did developing the guys. It maybe goes back to your earlier point of like, maybe it's not just quarterback where you should rely on experience first and foremost, like defensive line is, I think you're seeing that now with Mills and cross and Javante Jean-Baptiste and, you know, Jordan Botello, like, I think when the season, when spring practice ended, it was like, well, they really need a breakout season from Jordan Botello. Otherwise, the defensive line is not going to thrive at all. Well, like Jordan Botello has been okay, but Mills has been great. Cross has been unbelievable. Uh, Jean Baptiste has been great. So it's that position has been shocking to me about how well they developed it. Um, I think that that group without Washington is like, two, three, four, five steps ahead of where anybody could have thought um, they could have been. Full credit to Golden for taking advantage of it, Washington for developing it. Like, I thought the corners were going to be great. I thought the linebackers are very underrated. Um, I say that, like, I think the fan base sort of looks down upon Bertrand Kaiser and, and Leah Fowl a little bit, but I just thought they were going to be phenomenal. I think they've been very, very good. Um, you know, and then Xavier Watts is another great developmental story too, but that, I mean, the defensive line has just been, that's, it's probably the story of Notre Dame season is how good the defensive line is compared to where it looked like it was going to be when last season ended. Okay. I do have a question about the defensive line, but one quick follow-up on Al Golden. Where is he coaching next year? Uh, man, I think he's going to be in the NFL again. You know, it's like, yeah, because I, th I know that he had interest from a, a power five college job last year 
and declined it to stay at Notre Dame. As a DC um, or a head coach? No, as a head coach. Okay, wow. All right. Yeah. So it's like if he wasn't going, if he wasn't like looking to make that move, um, and I'm not saying it was a great job, but like, you know, are you going to go back to the Northeast? Like, do you want to be the head coach at Syracuse? I don't know. Um, and like, so maybe he stays at Notre Dame until like the right DC, NFL DC job opens. Um, and I, Marcus Freeman would be totally fine with that. I, th- I think in an ideal world, Al Golden stays. You sort of make Mike Mickens coordinator in training. And then a year from now, when Al Golden does move on, because um, there are very few fourth-year coordinators anywhere in the sport, um, Mickens is probably more ready to go. Yeah, that comment from Freeman earlier this week about Mike Mickens, about Mike Mickens certainly, uh, it felt timely. I would say, yeah. I don't know. I, I yeah. thought that was really interesting that he went out and said that um, so definitively. And I'm not disagreeing. I just thought that the timing of it was uh, was interesting. You hope it's a year in advance, right? Like you yeah. hope he's, he's setting it up for like the co-coordinator role in 2024 yeah. and full coordinator in 2025. I like the idea of coordinator in training. And as I was thinking about Al Golden, like, I feel like once you go to the NFL, it's really hard to go back. Now, granted, he went from being a linebackers coach for the Bengals to the defensive coordinator at Notre Dame, so it's a little bit different. But being able to get away from recruiting. And Al Golden, I think people, I say people, I'm guilty of this as well. I thought he was older than he actually is. He's only 54. So he's still got a lot of years left. But then again, then I see stuff today. I actually was pulling it up on my phone while you were talking um, about recruiting. There was an Auburn commit today who tweeted, my recruitment is 100% open, still committed to Auburn, just open to options. So <laughs> recruiting doesn't sound like the most fun thing in the world. So if Al Golden no. wanted to get out of that and go to the NFL, I could see why. And I think like he's got a pretty sweet spot for college at Notre Dame because like yeah. if you're a if you're a four-star linebacker, like I'll do respect to Al Golden. Like, who on staff did you want to talk to? You want to talk to the head coach who's was a linebacker. Um and like gets defense. So I think, you know, recruiting has been pretty good since golden's been here, but I think a lot of that has to do with like the personality of Marcus Freeman and just the sort of attraction that high school kids have to him. So if I'm out golden, like I wouldn't want any other college jobs as a defensive coordinator, at least because you're not going to have Marcus Freeman as your head coach elsewhere, but Man, the the NFL lifestyle, I, I get it. You go totally underground from August to January, but there's actually an offseason there that just doesn't exist uh, at this level of football. Yeah, what happens with Al Golden and what happens at the quarterback situation is definitely going to be the story of the offseason for Notre Dame, at least as it stands today. But hey, we've got plenty of time to talk about that when the time <laughs> comes. Pete and I still have plenty more to get to, including a bit of story time there at the end. But first, I wanted to tell you about FanDuel. Score early this NFL season with America's number one sportsbook. Right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 money line bet. That's $150 if your team wins. If you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there's no better time to get in on the action, and the app is so easy to use. There's a wide range of betting options, including spreads, player props, over-unders, and more. For my pick, I'm sticking with the Pittsburgh Steelers minus three against the Tennessee Titans tonight on Thursday Night Football. Check out that game and make sure you're rooting for the Steelers minus three. Visit Fandle.com slash locked on and kick off the NFL season. That's Fandle.com slash locked on. Fandle, an official partner of the NFL. You brought up Al Washington, and something I've been thinking about a lot this season is the perception of position coaches, not necessarily coordinators, specifically position coaches. So 
For example, Notre Dame's defensive line has far exceeded anyone's expectations this season. Al Washington definitely deserves a ton of credit for that. But on the other hand, the wide receiver play has been really disappointing. Is that a reflection of Chancey Stuckey as a coach? Because we know he's recruited well at the high school level, at least. But both years he's been on staff, the receivers have been one of the worst units on the team. Now, obviously, there's other factors to consider, like this uh, situation that Stuckey inherited. So I don't know the answer. This isn't a criticism of Chancey Stuckey, but I'm just curious how you think we should evaluate position coaches based on the performance on the field for that unit. Yeah, it's tough because it's like recruiting is part of it. Um, you know, it's like, I think Al Washington, he he had a, he has played a very good hand very well all year with the exception of the final two plays against Ohio state, um, which is a big exception, but you know, it's when you have, if you're starting four seniors across the board, like that's going to look good. Um, I don't know how much Al Washington gets credit for the fact that he's starting players that were here when he showed up. Chancey Stuckey, meanwhile, is throwing out a lacrosse player who's a freshman and just hoping it works. Like, I don't think Chancey Stuckey planned to do that when the season started. Like, I would hope not. <laughs> yeah, just like, huh, all right, we've, we're going to Duke and we're just going to play three receivers the whole game because we only have three receivers. That didn't work very well. Let's try this lacrosse guy. Great, he scored a touchdown. Like, that's... I, I don't... It's really hard to grade these guys um, based on how old their position groups are, how deep they are. Like, you know, receivers have also had a ton of injuries. Like I, I thought Jaden Thomas was going to have a really good year and he's just basically broken down because of the hamstring. Um, I don't feel like that has anything to do with Chancey Stuckey, good or bad. So I think restocking your position, Stuckey has done a pretty good job of that. Um, and I, I would upgrade that to very good when you include the guys coming in next year where they're just sort of rolling guys through now where you're not pinning your hopes on somebody like Cam Williams to be like, he's the savior at wide receiver. No, he's just like another good player adding to a group of good players. So, you know, it's like when you look at the recruiting out Washington has done on the defensive line, I think it's been good. Um, he's definitely getting the most out of a very old group this year. And he gets a bunch of credit for that. But um the fact that he's working with very old players, you know, and you could give him credit for Jean-Baptiste for sure, because he was the guy that recruited him to Ohio state four or five years ago. Um, but um, it's, I think it's just very hard to judge position coaches because we don't know how they fit into the staff necessarily. Um, you can judge their recruiting, but um, in terms of player development, it's like, I have a hard time critically looking at Chancey Stuckey like in any direction because it's just like you're you're playing Jordan Faison, Jaden Greathouse, Rick and Rico Flores. Um that's not gonna look good um a lot. But uh yeah the position needs to be better. But um I think in terms of the material that Notre Dame's gonna be working with, like it's it's getting there. Yeah, I think with Stucky, if the same problems persist two years down the line, if we're still talking about Notre Dame's wide receiver unit being a big weakness on the team, I think that's when you can start pointing at the position coach there. Even though the recruiting rankings have been great, if that doesn't lead to production on the field, it's going to lead to some criticism from the fan base. And part of the reason why I bring this up is because uh, when that receiver job opened up, 
a lot of the fans on message boards and things like that, they wanted Jamarcus Shepard, who is now the receivers coach at Washington. And Washington is one of the most dynamic receiving units in the entire country. How much is that on Shepard? I don't know. It could just be the fact that, hey, he inherited a Dunsay and McMillan, who just so happened to be two of the best wide receivers in the country. So it's a really interesting weird, conversation. Weird how that works out. Like. I know. So, like, if Chancey Stuckey is at Washington and then they've just flipped roles, is it a totally different conversation? It might be. But I'm glad uh, to hear your thoughts on that. So before we go, a couple uh, fun questions to close here. If you met someone who is, like, a casual college football fan, doesn't really know the ins and outs of it, how would you describe Pat Narduzzi's feelings towards Notre Dame? <laughs> I mean, how far could a stick be stuck somewhere? <laughs> um, I'm not, I don't know how you would measure it. Um, but as what far is, as you what is stick it, man? it like, what is it? When did it start? That's how far it would be stuck. I don't know if it's just like he's, he was like the Catholic guy from the Midwest that just didn't jive with Notre Dame. Like, I don't know. It's like, it's like he's got an entire, even though he's not coached at Boston College, I feel like he's Boston College, but if it was a coach um, <laughs> as it relates to Notre Dame. It's a it's a weird dynamic. And, like, I, I love college football for the characters that it has. So, like, college football is better because it has somebody like Pat Narduzzi in it. But I, do, I don't get it. Um, yeah. Like, his – and I the full quote after the game was better than what was clipped off, but you still, like, just don't say that. Um, in that moment, but, uh, he's, that guy's, the guy's something else. (laughs) I love, I love the full quote too. Cause he's like, Hey, it's my fault as a coach for replacing them with terrible players is basically what he was saying. He, he is such an interesting character. And it's like, I, I'm with you. We're like, as a Notre Dame fan, I obviously don't like him because of his disdain for Notre Dame, but I also find the relationship or the connection between the two is so funny. All right. Last one. What is the worst game you've ever covered inside Notre Dame Stadium? Because I I have one in mind, but I don't know if it's going to be what you pick. Um, I mean, the worst one, I don't think that I've covered a worse one than the Georgia Tech game in 2007. Um, like that, I've covered more boring ones. That's which that's, like, that's a, what I'm getting at. The yeah, most just boring. like, oh my god, I can't believe I'm here. Like, yes, well, this Stanford game Stanford end. last year was really would be really high on that list. It's just like, oh my god, this is terrible. Um, <laughs> it's so bad. You know, like uh, getting back to Pat Narduzzi, Michigan State in 2013, I think. Do I have the oh, year yeah, right the on that? The pass interference game. The pass interference yeah, game. That's 2013. Was, was just terrible football just terrible um you know there are a bit like there are some late stage tyrone willingham games where it's just like it's 37 nothing midway through the fourth quarter and and like i think they got smashed by florida state usc was a regular thing back then um those were bad but i i have a hard time getting away from like georgia tech in 2007 because it was just awful awful football um Although a shout out must be made for, I don't, I've, I'm going to switch the years on this. I think UConn in 2009 and Syracuse in 2008. No, you got it right. Cause 2009, okay. that was the last uh, Charlie Weiss home game. I yeah. Was at that those, game. those were incredibly depressing scenes to watch. Um, man, I, I feel like I go on 10 minutes on this one. Um, <laughs> like, but then it's, it's like, what's the most, uh, the worst game you've covered? Like, well, I'll give you 15. Um, yeah. 
I knew yeah. there would be a lot of options. That's why I asked you. And it's funny. It's like as soon as you get going, it's like, oh, then there's the Tulsa game. That was oh, really God. bad. Like, you, at you least, could go wild. At least the, the Tulsa game came down to a last drive by Notre Dame and what, Reese threw an interception when yep. they could have easily kicked a field goal to win it. And then Brian Kelly was like, I do it all over again. And then that was sort of the sign. We're like, huh, maybe this isn't going to be the most fun relationship. Yeah, it was like the week after the Navy game, and you had the Declan Sullivan stop. Oh, like a it was just like a, it was that was a rough, rough patch. That 2009 UConn game, I when I was living in Connecticut when I was working at ESPN, I would get shit from people in Connecticut for that game. Like a decade plus later, it's like you guys barely even have a football program anymore, and I, and you're talking trash to me about that game. So that resonated for a long time. I'm surprised you did not bring up. Cal last year I wanted to give up football (laughs) during the first half of that game that was a bad that was a really bad watch um I think I it probably slipped my mind because like Stanford was actually worse um because like that yeah they they just could not move the ball and it's like (laughs) this is so bad this is so bad like Cal at least you're like all right they're trying to make this work with Drew Pine they're trying to make this work with Drew Pine it's not working, but they're trying. Like this is the this is the only guy that they have. Um, so but yeah, but that that would that would definitely be in the top twenty of bad games. Um, not your. I'm. Gonna have I to think put this in story format. I was just point. gonna say. I think I might have given Man. you an off season column. Yes, yes. What is the worst football I've watched in twenty four years? Because there's there's been some. There's and maybe yeah, football. maybe the worst part of it. The worst part about it is how lengthy that list is going to be. But he is Pete Sampson. You can check him out on the Athletic and the Independent Podcast. Pete, I always look forward to any time we get to do this, so I really appreciate your time. Enjoy the game on Saturday, and uh, I'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Tyler. All right, that's going to do it for me today. Thanks again for making this your first listen of the day. Right now, I'm planning on doing another mailbag episode on Friday, so make sure to get your questions in. You can drop them below in the YouTube comments. You can send them in on Twitter, at LockedOnIrish, or slide in the Instagram DMs, at LockedOnIrishPod. Also, if you haven't subscribed yet, please do so now. You can do it on YouTube or wherever you're listening to the podcast. Either way, I really appreciate it. Same time, same place tomorrow, guys. I'll see you then.